0: This is a Bavli story about a sukkah a soft and misogyny with Ms. Meira Olkenfeld, who has most recently taught for Disha as part of the Dr. Beth Samuels summer high school program. And today she will be teaching about in this uh, teaching about in this class, we will analyze a Talmudic story in which a woman excuse, accuses the exilarch of sitting in a stolen sukkah. The story follows a legal discuss, discussion about performing the mitzvot of sukkot using stolen items look at the literary and cultural context. We will examine the interpersonal interactions in the story and the way the story nuances and personifies the themes of this learning discussion. And for those of you who have not had the privilege of learning with Ms. Wilkenfeld before, she, Ms. Wilkenfeld is a doctoral candidate at the Bernard Rebel Graduate School of Jewish Studies at Yeshiva University. Her dissertation examines the role of the, of the sense of smell in the world of the Babylonian Talmud. She has taught previously at Nyack College and, and in our own Beth, Dr. Beth Samuels High School Program. And she is also studying at Yeshiva Maharat um, for those of us, for, for those of you on Zoom, we have source sheets available in chat shortly. For those of you on Face, watching on Facebook Live, please keep an eye on the chat. You will see source sheets coming up shortly. And I believe will they also be? And you'll also be sharing slides. Yes,
1: I. There is a source sheet, but you do you do not need the source sheet. It's if you want it. When we're looking at text, I'll share it as as a slide, so we're on the same page. And the source sheet is if you want to go back and forth.
0: All right, and so. if yep, and. Please feel free to turn off your to show us your face, show us your camera. It's good. It's good to see everyone for a little bit of tomorrow in the morning. Um, if you have questions, feel free to you know raise your hand, um, unmute yourself if it's periodically if it's you know if it's a good spot to ask questions. Um, if you are watching on Facebook Live, please ask your questions in the chat. I will make sure that um, they get kind of passed forward. And with that, good morning. Awesome, thanks, Kayla.
1: It's really nice to see everyone. I'm excited to be here. Um, when I was asked if I had something to teach about Sukkot, I thought back to my time when I was teaching over the summer, I was giving, as Kayla mentioned, I was giving a Gemara Shir in the high school program and we were actually learning Masachet Sukkah. So I thought back to our learning over the summer and there was really one story, one text that really grabs me. Um, it's a provocative story. And so I think it is really enhanced by learning it in this type of context where we can hear people's everyone's reactions. and really the story itself is about feeling heard and feeling seen. So in that vein, I, I hope that we'll, however you're joining us, that you'll be able to join the conversation. When you study a story, you can hear a story just sort of in a vacuum by itself. And a story can have meaning and you can interpret a story that way. Or you can study a story in relation to the context that it's told in. And sometimes the context, informs what you see in the story. um, And sometimes the story informs how you understand the context. And that's what I'm gonna try to do today Is to what I hope we'll think about one thing is how the story relates to its context. So I'm gonna start just by sort of summarizing the Gemara, what the Gemara is talking about here. That'll be the first part. I'll um, sort of do that sort of frontally explain what is the discussion in the Gemara that is happening when we get to the story. And aside from that um, contextual introduction, I'm also going to try and give some cultural context to the story. Then we're going to read the story together, and that's a point um, where I'll definitely share my screen and we'll read it more closely. And after we read and translate, that's a point that I want to open up for discussion and hear some of your own, some of your reactions and interpretations. Uh, and then, and then to close, I'll share some of my own reflections and research around the story. And I hope. It's a it's a good example of how the Gemara uses stories, um, but I hope also there'll be some message that we can bring into our own celebration of this holiday because it's a story about Sukkot. Uh, so for the context, this story appears in the third chapter of Mesachet Sukkah. And if you have ever chosen your own lulav and etrag, you might have looked at its color or how many leaves it has, if it has a blemish on the skin, if the leaves are separated. The rules about all of that are found in this chapter. The Mishnah there deals with what makes a kosher lulav and an etrog. Um, here, I'm going to share my screen because even though even though the Mishnah is mostly about here what makes a kosher lulav and etrog, a lot of it is physical qualities. The Mishnah begins. The Mishnah begins. Lulav ha'gazul v'hayavesh pasul. A stolen lulav and a dried lulav. A lulav that's completely dried out is pasul. It's completely Um, invalid. It doesn't work as a lulav. And I think the starting place and the the grouping here is intentional. As if to say, just like the dried lulav, it's never going to be kosher. Um, Just as the physical imperfections make what what works as a kosher lulav or not a kosher lulav, so too, its ethical origins also inform what makes it a kosher lulav. And the mishnah is very um, straightforward here. A stolen lulav is not kosher. That's the end of the story. Simply, simple, straightforward. The stolen lulav is not a lulav, it doesn't work. And when we turn to the Gemara, when we turn to the Babylonian Talmud, as the Talmud is wont to do, the Gemara here is gonna complicate the picture. The Mishnah says the stolen lulav doesn't work. That's it in the Mishnah. And the Gemara is gonna sort of play with that and say, maybe, maybe there's a way that the stolen lulav actually does work. Uh, what I would say is that this whole sugya, this whole discussion is built on a contrast. Um, the the sugya is composed by putting intention different sources. Um, on the one hand, you have sources that, uh, uh-oh. there we go. On the one hand, you have sources that support this perspective of the Mishnah that the stolen one is always not gonna work. And then there are sources that are in tension with that and challenge it in various ways. Uh, so, for example, this in this Gemara, they they have a principle uh, which is says mitzvah haba be'avera eno mitzvah. A mitzvah that comes from a sin is not a mitzvah. So we know you can't steal. This principle says not only can you not steal, but the mitzvah you're doing with the stolen lulav, that is also not a mitzvah and this side this voice in the gemara is supported by verses from the prophets like this verse from isaiah hashem mishpat sona gesel i am god who loves justice and i hate a stolen sacrifice it's this strong moral indignant language but that is in tension with other sources that are brought that challenges in various ways uh, so for example we have here the position of shmuel who says sure you can't use the stolen lulav on the first day of the holiday because on the first day of the holiday there's a special rule that you um you need to own your own lulav um just as an aside that could be owning your own lulav for five minutes like let's say i don't have a lulav but kayla does have a lulav she can give me her lulav for one minute for me to shake it and it'll be mine for that minute but this is a special rule of the first day of the holiday that there's some ownership of the Arba Minim on that day. So says Shmuel, yes, you can't use on a stolen lulav on the first day of the holiday when you need to own your own lulav, but go ahead, it's fine. It totally works on the second day of the holiday, right? So you see, there's this tension here between mitzvah baba veira, the stolen lulav, like God hates the stolen lulav versus, sure, go ahead, day two. You don't need to own your own lulav, a stolen one should be fine. Um, and this is sort of the, the tension that animates the Gemara here. It talks about the stolen lulav. It talks also about Hadassim that have sort of murky origins and how you can maybe use them despite the murky origins. And it, it plays with this in different ways. So when we get to our story, the Gemara is now talking about the stolen sukkah, and you'll see the same, the same tension here. Um, so we have here a, a it's quoting a Tana Irik debate. It says sukka gazula a stolen sukkah, and someone who puts up their skach in the public domain. Um, the Gemara, we're not going to go into it, but the Gemara is going to question exactly what case we're talking about here. What is the case of a stolen sukkah is going to be complicated, um, but we'll, we'll just take it as face value. The stolen sukkah, Rabbi Eliezer, so Rabbi Eliezer says, that does not work. The And the Chachamim say, yeah, a stolen sukkah is totally fine, it works for the mitzvah of sukkah. So like I said, what exactly is this case is gonna be a question, but um, regardless, this debate between Rabbi Eliezer and the rabbis seems to be related to a debate they have that is brought up a few pages before in the Gemara about a borrowed sukkah, where Rabbi Eliezer says, just like you need to own your own lulav on the first day of the holiday, he thinks you also have to own your own sukkah on the first day of the holiday. And the rabbis think you don't need to own your own sukkah at all any day of the holiday. And the there's a verse cited in in support of their position that says, kol ha'ez, kol ha'ez b'israel that all the citizens of Israel will sit in, in sukkot. And that is interpreted as meaning um, that we should all be able to sit in one sukkah together. So you don't need to own your sukkah. There's there's a communal aspect to this, um, to that this, the rabbis are picking up on in this verse. Um, so they think that there's no special obligation to own your own sukkah, even on the first day of the holiday. Okay, so uh, coming back to this debate, the Gemara has this debate about a stolen sukkah. And now it says, um, and this this line is, here we have the narrative voice of the Gemara, uh, sometimes called the stab, and it says, so, but if someone stole trees or wood and used them for skach, according to everyone, according to everyone, he, and the he here is the original owner, is only entitled to the monetary value of the trees. So what this line is saying is, yes, there's a debate about if a kosher, if a stolen sukkah works, but if there's, if you steal, you have your own like walls, and the rest of the sukkah is yours. But you steal some branches for skach, According to this anonymous narrative voice in the Gemara, everyone would agree that that is a kosher sukkah. Totally fine. It works. You don't have to be. You're not obligated to give those branches back. All you're obligated to do is to compensate the person who whose they were originally monetarily. So why that is the case, the Gemara doesn't say, we can infer it from Gemara's before and after, which Rashi mentions. Um, but this line, this halakha that the, that the skakh, that when you steal skach it should work and be a kosher sukkah and you're only obligated to pay the money of the skach this is the jumping off point for our story. So we can come back to the why if people are interested in that, um, but I think we should just go on to the story. Does that sound good? Okay. <laughs> Um, So I have to admit that when I submitted the title for this year, I had not looked at manuscripts of this story. When you open up a Gemara like off the shelf or in a Beit Midrash, or you open up Safaria in the Gemara, so what you're looking at is the Vilna Shas, um, which is the version of the Gemara which was printed in Vilna in the 1800s, and it's not that's not the first printing of the Gemara, and we have earlier manuscripts and um, some earlier printings. And sometimes there are slight variations between these different versions. Usually they don't have a lot of, often not meaningful differences. And here, I don't know that it is such a meaningful difference, but I'm mentioning it because I, you know, I put Safta in the title. And then if you open up the manuscript, actually Safta is not in any of the other manuscripts. It's not in any of the other versions except for the Vilna Shas. And it's actually very easy to check if you're interested in this type of work. It's very easy to check manuscripts nowadays because they're all digitalized online on this website that I put here, the Friedberg Jewish Manuscript Society. They have a Bavli website called Hachi Gar-Sinan, and it just gives you columns uh, with all the versions side by side. And even what's different than the printed version is in red. So I just copy and pasted here so you could see. So the version in the printed version says, Hahi Safta the there was a grandma who came in front of Rav Nachman, but every other version just says a, a woman. Maybe she is a grandma. Maybe not. I don't know. It says "Hai itzisadate kame to Rev Nachman." So there was a woman who came in front of Rav Nachman. And here I just want to um, pause for a second and ask: Does anyone know anything about Rav Nachman? Who is Rav Nachman? I see a no. So I will share a little bit about Rav Nachman. Rav Nachman is a rabbi in the Gemara. He is a student of Shmuel. He lives sort of in the be- towards the beginning of the Amoric period, like end of the two hundreds, early three hundreds, and he is closely associated. He seems to have married into the family of the Exilarch. The Exilarch is the official representative of the Babylonian of the Babylonian Jewish community to the government. So we're here's a little map. The Babylonian Can you, I don't think you could see my cursor, right? Okay, so I'll just, you can see. Um, So Babylonia is this area between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, the bottom, like the bottom oval here. And during this period that the Babylonians homeland came together, it's ruled by the Sasanian empire, which is a Persian empire. So the exilarch is the representative of the Jewish community to the Persian government. And again, what exactly that entails, how, form, how, how much power he has, that is murky. We don't really know that. Um, but what we know about him from the Gemara is he, the exilarch is wealthy, he uses Persian words and sort of a Persian aristocratic feel. And Rav Nachman who's married into this family, he also, um, he is in, in the Talmud associated, he is sort of made fun of for using actually Persian words. He seems to be wealthy. Um, and both Rav Nachman and the institution of Exilarchy are associated with two places. Uh, one place is Naharda, which is on, well, actually it's sort of interesting, like the things we know about the ancient worlds and the things we don't know, there's actually some question where exactly Naharda was the city, but um, it's either on the Euphrates River or these rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates have um, canals. And the canals are, uh, people travel on the canals, and their trade goes on the canals, and also irrigate irrigation. And so Naharza is either on the Euphrates River or it's on this big canal uh, called the Nahar Malka, the Royal Canal. Here's a here's just another map, so you can see on this map there's a here's Naharda. and the other place that the Exilarchy and Rav Nachman seem to be a lot is Mechosa, and the Nahar Malka goes between Naharda and Mechosa, and it would make sense for the Exalarchy to be in Mechosa because Mechosa is um, it's like a suburb of Tesiphon, which is the Persian, it's the, it's the winter capital of the Sasanian Empire. So here's Tessifon over here. Mahoza is a suburb that's like across the bridge from Tessifon. Um, there's some famous rabbis like Reva who lives in Mahoza. Uh, and unlike Naharza, Mahoza has actually been excavated. And and uh, Mahoza and Tesiphon, they're about 15 miles from Baghdad, if you want a sense of where it is today. Um, and there is a little, there is one, there is part of the, the A-Sassanian palace from Tesiphon is still standing. Here's a picture, um, from, I guess just a few months ago. I just took a recent picture from Google Maps because I feel like sometimes when you learn the Gemara, it's disconnected from the place. And here you can see what does this look like today, Tesiphon. it's unclear whether or not this palace would have been standing during the time of the Gemara. There's some unclarity about when this palace was built, but likely not during the period of the Ammarayim, but perhaps at the close of the Gemara this would have been standing here. But it gives you a sense of what would a Caesadian palace look like. Um, it's it's today been partially reconstructed and the, the reconstruction is falling apart. You can see that's why there's this blockade around it. You can see a little palm tree just to give you a, set the stage of the story for the environments of, of Iraq at this time. Um, so Rav Nachman and the x lark they're going to be using luxury items, like here's some Sasanian glass. Um, in stories in the Babylonian Talmud, here's a story about the Resh Galutza, that's the Aramaic term for the ex-lark, And here it uses some Persian words. He has a avornka, which is some, that's a Persian word for this royal banqueting pavilion. And he has it babustane in his fragrant garden. And there's a long historical tradition of the like Persian aristocratic, like palace gardens. And so here, this is a Shabbat meal that the exilarch, someone is setting up for the exilarch in his floral garden. And I just put it here because I think it's interesting when we have our story, it's going to be about Rav Nachman and the Rish Galuta sukkah. And it's, it, it feels like, you know, this is just a regular Shabbat and they're sitting in a, in a you know, this, uh, this garden. So when we imagine them sitting in the sukkah, it's going to have this, this, the trappings of, of Persian aristocracy in a certain sense. Um, here's another story about Rav Nachman. And in this story, um, a different rabbi from a different town from Pumpadita comes to visit Rev Nachman. And there's some um, tension in the story about Rev Nachman, where this other rabbi sort of chides him from using very Persian words. And one thing Rev Nachman offers him that he uses the Persian word for is actually an etrog, because that's another thing that, um, like in stories about Persian kings in the Talmud, they sometimes eat citrons. It's like a Persian luxury fruit. So just kind of interesting how the Sukkot setting fits with the. It might, maybe in the story has a certain Persian aristocratic feel. Okay, so let's let's go back to our story now that we know who Rav Nachman is. So hahi za lakame de Rav So there was a woman who came in front of Rav Nachman. Amra leh, she said to him, Resh Galuta the Kulu rabanan. And again, in some versions it says Kulu Rabanan Zvei Rish So the Rish Galuta and all the rabbis of the house of the Rish Galuta, sukkah, Gazula Yatve. They are sitting. Excuse me, sir. You and the Rish Galuta and all of the rabbis sitting with you. You are sitting in a stolen sukkah. That's what she says to them. Uh, so the next two words are in red because that is in some versions and not others. So you can. Decide for yourself if you think this should be part of the story or not. It says Savcha Savcha. She cried and cried. Or you can not have that line in the story if you want. He did not pay attention to her, or he did not look at her. Amra he, Leh. she said to him, she says to him, a woman whose father had
2: 318 slaves is crying in front of you and you don't even look at her? You don't pay her any attention? Amar lehu Rav Nachman. Rav Nachman said
1: to them, he does not respond to her. He doesn't answer her. He, he just is talking to whoever was sitting with him in the sukkah, these other rabbis. So Amar Lahu Rav Nachman, Rav Nachman said to them, Pi'ata Hida, or in some versions it's Pi'ata Hada. This one is a screamer. This one is a quarrelsome woman. And she is not entitled to anything except for the monetary value of the trees. Right? This was our halacha that we had right before the story. He says, I don't owe her anything. My sukkah is kosher. I only owe her the monetary value of the branches. So this is where I want to pause for a minute. And um, here's some of the questions I had on the story. Uh, But I'm going to unshare my screen. And I would like to know if anyone, how people react to the story. What does it make you feel? Do you sympathize with any of the characters?
2: Are there details that stand out? What are, do you have questions about the story?
1: What, what, what are your first reactions? Or not first reactions if you've seen it before. Um, any thoughts?
0: Also, if you're watching on, on Facebook, please, please feel free to share, even if it's just in the chat box. I think I see a hand from
3: Evelyn. Yes. Um, it seems to be a tension, like a class tension that's playing here alongside the whole legal tension, the whole legal question is this class tension. There's obviously a woman who's been rich before and now doesn't, is, doesn't have her wealth. And then we have Rab Nachman who's sitting there, you know, in his beautiful sukkah, wealthy. And it's that tension that's playing out between the classes that seems to bother me. And he doesn't seem to be a sympathetic character because he's just ignoring her.
1: Right. Totally not responsive. I totally, yes, totally. There's definitely a class, uh, a class tension here. I, why, why do you say that she doesn't have her wealth anymore? You're say, you say she was wealthy. She refers to
3: herself as, as she, she is the daughter of a man who had 318 clothes Yeah. Interesting, and it's not her own wealth; it's her father's wealth.
1: And she's also here complaining. It's, we don't exactly know. An interesting thing about the way the story is told is we don't know what actually happens, right? She says there's a stolen sukkah, and from his answer, we might, we could infer the situation. It seems based on his answer that maybe someone took her branches um, to make the exilarch sukkah and she's here fighting for her branches. So maybe that would also, I, I actually, that's, it's really interesting. I didn't notice this, but I think you might be right. Maybe she was wealthy and now she's not. We don't, we don't exactly know. I think this is an interesting thing about the way the story is told in general. What do we know about the characters and what do we not? Like she comes and says she has a stolen sukkah. We don't know what the situation is. Um, any other reactions or responses? I'm curious, so I I think one reason the Gemara uses stories is the story doesn't have a, it's not like a law that a law has a clear yes or no. A story is nuanced and it's about people. Um, and I agree with you that Rav Nachman is so unsympathetic in this story. It's like painful to to see this woman screaming before him and he doesn't even look at her, he doesn't respond to her or acknowledge her. Um, but I'm curious if anyone read hears Rav Nachman in a sympathetic light or can um, suggest a sympathetic
2: reading to Rav Nachman.
0: So I, yeah,
2: mom. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, <laughs> just the way she approaches so that she's maybe, I. I um, either hysterical or she interrupts and and so she's taken less seriously and so it's not so much what she's asking but maybe how she's asking it. Um,
2: yeah
1: I so again I'm gonna I'm gonna argue for the reading that we're supposed to be critical of Rev Nashman in the story but I think that there is some ambiguity and um, I think that there are moments where both characters are somewhat sympathetic. Like, I could imagine being in a situation where, um, like, someone a few days ago told me a story where someone sort of harassed them or yelled at them on a the street, and they said, um, and I just didn't engage, I didn't look or respond to them, and then they went away and it was fine. And again, I don't think that's what's happening here, but we can, I think that you can imagine being in a situation where someone where there's uncertainty about whether or not you should engage like is this person stable is it is it better to you want to you don't want to not recognize someone's humanity but i i i don't think Nachman is right here i think the story is being critical of him and i'm going to try and prove that Um, but i think that i I think that stories are not straightforward, and maybe there is an uncertainty here. Is that another hand,
3: um, Evelyn? I'll mute myself. Um, in ter- and when I think about Reb Nachman, um, he isn't given a chance to defend himself, she's just coming at him. And you don't really know, did he, do you, are you supposed to believe that he intentionally is using stuff that's been stolen? I mean, if he's Reb Nachman and he has all the money in the world, why would he ever do that? Yeah. So you have to give him some, some means of defending himself and she's not doing that. And and the story doesn't really tell us how he comes to use this Maybe it's very innocently. And, uh, you know, he didn't know that it was stolen. Yeah, I
1: I find that one moment in the story that I find very uncomfortable is actually the way that he responds, which is he doesn't deny that it's stolen. It, which makes you feel like he knows because he, his answer isn't, I didn't steal it, I don't know where the stuff comes from. His answer is, oh yeah, it's stolen, but the rule is that I'm only obligated in, um, I'm only obligated to pay for the value, I don't have to give it back. Right? That's the halacha that he quotes in the end. Um, and now that I'm bringing up the, the halakha, I am curious if people have ideas about how this story relates to the context. So maybe we'll we'll get back to that and there's just one more piece I want to I want to ask you about. Um any thoughts on the this what she says here? I have my father had 318
2: slaves or servants. What what is going on with that line? Any th- any thoughts about that? Is that? Evelyn, are you?
3: I, I think she's just putting herself on an equal status with him. You know, I'm just as good as you are. You know, yeah. listen to me.
1: You can read it as a critique of Rav Nachman or the ex-Lark, as you, like she's saying, sort of. You you seem like you're only going to respond to someone who's as wealthy as you, um, which is what you said in the beginning about this class. There's this class conflict here. Um, I also wondered when I first read it. I it's like unclear exactly what she's saying. Maybe we're supposed to wonder is she does she know what she's talking about? Is she sort of just rambling in sort of a, a crazy way? Um I I think it's not clear. And um there is Rashi has sort of an interesting suggestion here, and maybe I'm gonna. Um, share my screen again to look at some texts um, that might help us in our interpretation. Um,
0: Can I just jump in with one or two questions from the- Yes, please. Chat? Um, one person in comment, I believe, I'm not, maybe this is in response to the, uh, I guess, the 318 slaves or it's like the comment saying, like, he does not even look look at her, and it's possible the number of slaves is like, this is a sign of her standing in the community from uh, uh JB. Yeah,
1: totally. I, and it does sound like that's what she's trying to do. Like you're sitting here with all these high class people. Like I, like, why don't you see me? Like I am also from this background, acknowledge me. Um, Yeah,
2: totally think that's what is happening. Um, Okay, let me, oh wait, I see some hands here. Mom, do you want
0: it? Yeah, I was just going to say, it's, there, there might be a little bit of irony there, though, because at some level, she's sort of complaining, like, status or wealth shouldn't be relevant, but nonetheless, for me to enter the conversation, I'm going to prove that I have it. I, yeah. You know, like, I know you could kind of argue that both ways.
1: Yeah, I, I want to come back to that. I'm going to come to that in a minute. Um, Evelyn, did you want to say something again as well? No, okay, um, yeah. So that what you said is interesting, and here let's let me share my screen again. I'm gonna go forward and then back here. Rashi has an interesting suggestion here about these 318 servants, and we can take it or leave it. But what Rashi says is he says I recognize that number 318. He said he thinks that's a reference to Abraham, because there is this story. I, I put it here um, where Abraham goes to war to protect, Um, right, Lot's been captured and Avraham goes to war and he has 318 people who have, are members of his household that he's bringing with him. So Rashi says this 318 is a reference to Avraham. And if so, then you could read it, kind of what you're pointing to. It's, It's interesting, like it's a story about like there's this discrepancy of privilege, and she's not saying like, "Listen to me, I'm poor." She's saying, "Listen to me, I'm also rich." If you read this, if you read this in Rashi's way that this is a reference to Abraham, you don't have to say that because you could read it as she's saying, "Look, my father is Abraham. We're all Jewish. We're all. I am also need to be heard." Um, so that that is one reading of that 318. Um, and again. It's it's an open question. Is that a is that a reference to Abraham or not? I don't know. And if it is a reference to Abraham, it's sort of an interesting reference. Like it feels kind of almost random. I don't know if um, I don't know why. <laughs> what why is that the reference?
3: Yes, Evelyn. Yeah. I, I have no basis for it, but it seems to me we're coming in, in the middle of a discussion, and there was something prior that's that we don't know about. Like here, she's coming and screaming, but. Something must have happened before that she may have tried to get her compensation earlier or tried to get heard earlier. Something is missing.
2: I agree with you.
1: Yes. I feel that from Rav Nachman's response, what he is implying in his response is this woman has a... And again, I don't know if it's justified because we don't know. We're told so little in this story. All we're told is what they say and how they respond. But... um, the way he says she's a screamer, she's a quarrelsome woman, that word piazza, it means she's a quarrelsome woman. Um, it's, to me, he seems to be implying that they have some kind of history. Like this is a person who comes to yell at him a lot. Again, we don't know if it's true, but I think that's what he's saying, um, that it's sort of in the middle of that somehow. It's interesting to me, one thing, so one thing I really love about Gemara stories is you sort of, you don't know if you've read a Gemara story, you may not expect them to, but a short story about a rabbi, you might think it would be like an example that it's it's going to tell you something about how this rabbi acted in such a great way. And the stories in the Gemara are not like that. The rabbis are fallible and and flawed. Um, and I think this is an example of that type of story. But it's interesting because there are other stories about Rav Nachman when he is, he is, um, usually he is a, in this type of story. So the language of that she comes before Rav Nachman, Rav Nachman is a judge, and that language is sort of like the language of you come before a judge with a complaint. And um, there are many, there are stories. In stories of cases of people coming before Rav Nachman, usually they're stories about him actually being sympathetic, of him hearing the orphan or listening to the woman. When I thought this was specifically a story about a safta, I looked at other stories with that use the word safta, which um, you know could could be implying like an older woman, um, and I thought maybe there's some sort of stereotype there, but they're not. Like he's actually a person who's particularly sympathetic in other stories, um, which I don't know if that makes it. Like in one way that could mean like, we should interpret this as he's justified in responding to her, but on the other hand, I think you could read that as it's almost worse. Like here's a person who thinks that they're responsive, who thinks that they're sympathetic, and even they're messing up and not seeing that they're not seeing someone. I'm gonna go to some of those other stories. Um, And we shouldn't assume that every story knows every other story or that these are, Um, working off of each other, but it's just interesting to see how, how does the Gemara value? How does it, how does it think of Rav Nachman? What other types of stories are taught about it? And and how does it relate to like these themes of not looking at her, this this phrase, not paying attention to her does come up in other stories. Um, So we're just gonna look at these ones briefly. This one says a person who, who built an apadna, if anyone knows about ancient architecture, that's, um, it's a mansion, but it's an Akkadian word that I think it is in English also, ap- apadana, whatever. This guy built a mansion on the garbage heap that, uh, this garbage heap that belongs to orphans. And Ravnachman confiscates the person's mansion. And There is a rule, the Gemara discusses this in the context of whether or not, you know, a garbage heap is not a property that anyone is living on, or I guess they're using it for their garbage, but it seems like not in this case. And the Gemara is trying to figure out whether or not if you squat in a place that's uninhabited, do you have to pay rent or not? And it's sort of assuming at this point that you wouldn't have to, so it says, well, does Rev Nachman think you have to pay like this guy who, you know, he's building something on this land that isn't really being used for anything. but he's but then Rav Nachman confiscates it from him. And the Gemara says, no, it's he doesn't think that. but it's just that these orphans were getting someone of this tribe, this these nomadic people, the Carmanians were living on this land, and they they were giving the orphans some money to live here. And now that they're not, Rav Nachman said to this new person who's gonna build on this garbage heap that he needs to pay the orphans. Um, so this is a story specifically with Rav Nachman, where it says, um, here it's the other person who, velo that was our phrase, right? Rav Nachman, that was repeated in our story that this woman has a complaint, he doesn't pay attention to her. So here's someone else who doesn't pay attention to the plight of orphans, and Rav Nachman confiscates his mansion. So this is a story like where the rabbi is good, is being evaluated positively and he, he is listening to the plight of the orphans and he is like the listening thing is clearly something that you wanna do in this case. Uh, here's another one. Now, this one um, I got from a very lovely article from, from someone named Shmuel Faust, who has a book on agarata where he talks about our story. And he says, that on face value, you might think originally that our story is, uh, well, I'm, I'm. let me go back for a second. I'm gonna unshare my screen and then come back to this. So in terms of how we see the story as relating to the context, on the face value, I think, on the most surface reading, it feels it seems like on the surface level reading the story supports the most only surface level reading the story supports the the context where the gemara said this rule everyone agrees that is that if you steal skakh you only have to pay the monetary value and it is a kosher sukkah and then the gemara tells a story which shows here's a rabbi here's this big rabbi who repeats that ruling so on a very surface level it's supporting the halakha with a story. Um, but many people have written about how oftentimes stories on, a, on that surface level they support, but really they are nuancing and complicating and subverting. And in um, Shmuel Faust's article, he suggests that that's what's happening here, and I think this is right. On the surface level, the Gemara, the Rav Nachman, yes, Rav Nachman is, is supporting the halakha in the story. But firstly, the Gemara said, everyone agrees that if you stole the skach, this sukkah works and you only are obligated in the money. Well, when you get to the story, not everyone agrees because this woman, this happens to her and she's mad, right? So she's clearly, clearly not everyone agrees because here she is up in arms. Um, but I think even more than that, the story is making us think, okay, here's the halakha, but it is uncomfortable and it's not so nice. Um, and what Faust says is that these, this, this relates to the larger theme of the sugya. When I spoke before about the context and um, these two things that are putting in context here, sorry, in contrast here, the the stolen, this moral, indignant moral voice of the stolen lulav is always a problem and mitzvah baba vera, a mitzvah that is dependent upon a sin is always a problem versus the halachic positions that are suggesting, oh, maybe there's a way to use the stolen one, right? That was the major tension in the Sogya. And the story personifies that tension in these two characters. You have the woman who is the voice of indignant, moral, uncompromising moral voice. And you have the rabbi who is the legal, like the legal position. And so it. It, it subverts a little bit the, the the halacha and the gemara in that it, it makes us think maybe that's the Halakha, but look at this woman like that wasn't so nice. And look at Rav Nachman; he's the halachic voice, but he's so he's so uncomfortable in this story. And um, and so it personifies those characters that way. There's there's a there's a very famous ramban that where the ramban uses the phrase Naval birashut haTorah someone who is disgusting with the permission of the Torah, um, right? You did something that was like halakhically permissible, but it's so, it's just not nice. And I, I think this, this story is making us feel like that. Like maybe there's a halakhic permissibility that is still inappropriate. And, and that, that's actually the question of the Suggia is, is the halakha always gonna be with what is totally like the most yashar yashar, or is it, or is it more, You know, is there going to be a way to use this lulav that came from this or the sukkah that has some something unsavory in its past? Um, And the story, the story personifies those those two different positions. Um, Okay, so now with that, going back to the story of Rav Nachman, this other story of Rav Nachman, because this is one story that Shmuel Faust points to to say we are supposed to read Rav Nachman here in a negative light. Um, this is a story not actually about Rav Nachman, but here it's a story about, um, I'm going to just go from right before the blue. I just highlighted, you can see how the story is related to our story. It uses very similar phrases, and I'm not sure exactly how they're related, but there's certainly um, some connection here. So here's a story um, where Rav Yehuda have a yativ Kameh de Shmuel. So Rav Yehuda is sitting in front of Shmuel. Um, Shmuel is a Amora from the first generation. So he's actually a teacher of Rav Nachman. So Rav Yehuda just happens to be sitting there. And again, this language of Yatif Kameh, like there's a lot of resonances with our story. hahi Kasavcha Kameh. Came that woman who was crying before him. This time, we don't know what her complaint is. We don't know if it's the same woman. Uh, I mean, this presume this is set in an earlier time, but here's a woman coming and complaining in front of Shmuel and um, it's using, it's just interesting how it uses exactly the same language of our story. Um, I meant to say earlier, we, we talked about the class, the class tension in our story, but of course there's also a gender, a gender tension, right? Here's this woman She's standing, and she comes to the sukkah where it's full of rabbis who are sitting. And there's this, there is a gendered piece here, and the way that he refers to her as um, as Savra So there are other stories, as I mentioned, there are stories of women coming and complaining, coming and bringing their complaints before the court before Rav Nachman, and often there's stories about him listening to women and being sympathetic, which obviously that this is not. Um, but that word, savcha, is commonly used for a woman complaining. And actually, let's go back and look at it in the story. Um, right, so she's, so there's this thing in some versions and not others that says she she complained and compl- she cried and cried, savcha, savcha. Um, but that's not, one thing Faust points out is that's not actually the original word that Gemara used to, to, characterize the way she talks. The, the Gemara says, she said before she said to him, Amraleh, she says to him, you're sitting in a stolen sukkah. And what Faust suggests is savcha, savcha is how he sees her. He sees her as crying and crying. Um, and just interesting about this word. So this is a word that is used specifically for it's not used for men who come and bring a case to a court. It's only used for women who are coming to bring a case to a court. So I think there is such a big, and and I, um, you know, when I hear the story, I think it is so, one thing that is shocking about it is it feels so contemporary, like so much part of contemporary discourse, like shockingly so about, here is a story about a woman not being heard. Um, I, I saw that there's there's a word someone coined in 2017 called hepeat instead of repeat. A hepeat is when a woman says an idea and no one listens to it and then a man repeats it and everyone says, this is such a great idea. Um, and um, I think that this is something that people I know feel um, that they encounter professionally sometimes. And I think this is something like you feel it in the story. She's talking and he doesn't listen. And I thought, am I reading this with too modern of a lens? But I think that this is actually, the story is critiquing Rav Nachman for this. Um, so the word savcha, as I said, it's used for women. And I think it's, that's a little bit where we see where we see some of the, but this story is not critiquing the use of that word, but I think savcha is like
2: shrill, the word shrill in English. I don't think people use the word shrill to describe men. Right, shrill is specifically a critique of of women. I don't know that Savcha has the same, I don't know that it has
1: the same, uh, like it brings with it the same things, but I think here it's a word like this woman is a screamer. It's using a certain stereotype of a woman who's screaming and complaining, like sort of a mad woman. Um, But, and I think this is how Rav Nachman sees her, and yet the story is critiquing this and here, here, just this is the other story that Shmuel Fass points to that I, I think is interesting in this regard because here again you have the same language of a woman who comes in front of Shmuel and she is doing this complaining, crying. And just like Rav Nachman, he does not pay attention to her. Okay. Um, but here the story, this story is more explicit about how we should think about that, not paying attention. Because Rav Yehuda's here sitting and observing, and he says to Shmuel, mm-hmm. Rav Yehuda says to Shmuel, don't you hold like this verse, like this is a verse in Proverbs, the one who cries, The one who cries out, if you don't listen, if you withhold your ear from the one who's crying out, you too will call out and not be answered, right? That's a pretty strong critique. You're withholding your listening from someone someone crying out. You also won't be listened to. That's pretty clear that what he's doing is wrong. And Shmuel sort of replies in this ambiguous way, not ambiguous, but not not super great way. He's like, yeah, he he says this unusual thing here. Your head is in cold water. There's a typo here, but the head of your head is in hot water, which presumably means something like, yes, I should be punished. Like, yes, it was wrong for me not to listen, but it's especially wrong for the person who's even above me. Like the real head is the one who the most needs to listen, which I think is interesting in our story because this um, where this story appears about Shmuel and Rav Yehuda is a discussion of the exilarch and the exilarch's responsibilities to um, to the people. And the point here is sort of like a regular person should listen, but someone who's really in charge all the more so they should listen. And I think this is interesting in our reading of Rav Nachman. He's the top guy in the story, so how does how should he especially respond and Again, I don't have—I don't know what the right words are, and it depends on if you think the woman is—is is she right or is she not right? But how how are, how should he respond? And certainly, the story is saying is saying the not listening is not a good thing. Um, so I, I do think we're supposed to read our story as critical to to Rav Nachman.
2: Um, gonna unshare again, just to see the time.
1: Um, so again, we've we've considered the story in in relation to the Sukhya and how it relates to the Sukhya and sort of nuances it and, um, and adds a, a critique. But we can also think about the story on its own. And this is a story about Sukkot. So I just want to end by thinking about why is the story set on Sukkot? Does it draw on the themes of the Sukkah? Um, how does it relate to Sukkot? And I was thinking, when I hear this story about,
2: if, if the 318 is indeed a, a reference to Abraham, I, this is a story about a Sukkah. To me, the 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 reference that I
1: hear is a reference. Not that I hear. That I wonder if there's a. Resonance to Abraham's tent, because we're talking about a sukkah and what's the structure that's with Abraham, his, his tents. Abraham is, of course, known for hospitality. And the source about the sources, uh, the Midrash, uh, there's a verse after Abraham has a brief milah and he's sitting, Petacha Ohal, he's sitting in the opening of his tents. And the Midrash says he's sitting at the opening of his tent because he wants to see who's gonna come. He's, he's purposely making it open to see who's passing. And that's where he runs out to see, he sees these three people walking who are the three angels, but he doesn't know who they are. And he runs out to greet them. And it's so in contrast to Rav Nachman because our story is Rav Nachman sitting in a sukkah with his friends, with the other rich rabbis and a woman comes and he doesn't listen to her and pay attention to her. And that is so in, in contrast with the vision of Abraham sitting at his tent who's running out to people who he has no idea who they are. Like he just sees these people outside, he has no idea. Um, and if it is indeed a, a reference to Abraham, it could be incisive in that way. Um, I think that it's it's a, it's maybe one way of looking at a sukkah and what should a sukkah be like. Like, I think the story is asking us to think about who is in our sukkah and are we hearing them? Here's Rav Nachman, someone who does sometimes hear or wants to hear the voices of the poor or of women and he's not. Um, so who are we not listening to or not hearing? How do we make our sukkot um, open in that way? How do we make them like Abraham's tents? And um, earlier in the shir I, I mentioned the debate about whether or not you can sit in a borrowed sukkah which is, of course, related to this question of whether or not you could sit in a stolen sukkah, um, right? And the Gemara s- says there that the rabbis think you can sit in a borrowed sukkah because, um, because of this verse that says, uh, Kol tishvu yishvu basukot, that everyone, the whole, all the citizens are gonna sit in sukkot. There's this idea that we should all be able to sit um, in each other's sukkas. And I think the story is asking us is, um, it's challenging us to how do we make our sukkah a place that's open in that way, that is a place where everyone can can sit with us in the sukkah. Um, I I did put on the source sheet and, and on the slides, I'll just show you quickly some of these sources about Avraham, because I was wondering, is there anything else that connects Avraham's tent to the sukkah? Um, here's a Gemara about Avraham and in the story of Abraham and the three guests, he, he runs out to meet them. He prepares them all this food and the Gemara here says all the things that Abraham did, God does something corresponding to us. So Abraham gives them, he gives these people milk and butter. So Hashem gives us the man. Or he stands with them under the tree. He stands with them, and therefore God gives us the Ananeha Kava, the clouds of glory, which, um, which are also representative of the sukkah. So I was thinking about the sukkah as this representation of um, hospitality. Like, how do we make our sukkahs like those, like those clouds of glory, those protective things? And may, maybe that is the reference to Abraham with the three eighteen. Maybe that's the time that he is going out um, to protect someone of his household. But I, I just think it's an interesting. Again, we don't we don't have to take the 318 as a reference to Abraham, but I was wondering if we do, um, maybe there's a critique there and a suggestion
2: that we should make our sukkot open in that way. Someone just asked if there's a source
1: sheet. There is a source sheet, um, and it is in the chat, and maybe. Kayla, we'll send it again. Um, I think it's accessible on Drisha. Thank you.
0: Yes, it's available in the chat and it will be up on drisha.org slash live momentarily.
1: Um, But I'd love if anyone has any other suggestions or interpretations or questions.
2: Now would be a great time. I did want to say also how I think this is this is um,
1: the way that a story can be subverting the halacha. This is
2: something that has been uh, suggested in various ways, and um, like in
1: relation to to other stories, that this is like a common phenomenon. Um, and one way someone. I saw Ruth Caldron, who has like a lovely book on stories. She characterizes it like you can pet a you can pet a pet alongside the way their fur uh, the way their fur goes, or you can pet it against the fur. And when you pet it against the fur, right? It's like you read the story against the grain of the rest of the text. Sometimes it's more um, you can get more out of it, which I thought was an interesting metaphor. Um, I see a question: Do we know what they would have used for stach? I do not know the answer to that, but I can tell you, we saw in the picture, there's a palm tree there in Iraq. There's palm trees and there's reeds. Those are the things that are around. Um, So I don't know for sure, but that's what I would imagine. Yes. Um, This is right. So I'm going to, one thing that we mentioned Um, in the, I'm um, just going to answer this question. Someone put in the Chat, do you think the original Takanat Marish is a subversion also? So I didn't explain when we saw it in the Gemara why is it that the Gemara thinks that I'm um, just giving some background to this question. Why is it that the Gemara thinks that you you're not obligated to repay to give her back the branches, the and those become yours and it's a kosher sukkah and you're only obligated to pay the money. So. The Gemara doesn't say why, but there's really two possibilities mentioned in Rashi. One of them is that um, there's a rule, like let's say so you, you stole a chunk of clay and you made your chunk of clay into a bowl. So let's say I, I stole some clay from Kayla and made my clay into a bowl. I don't have to give Kayla back the bowl. That's not what I stole. I, I, because that has had a shinui Masa and shinui Shem, I've changed the object so much that it's a new object. I didn't steal a bowl from Kayla, I stole her, I stole clay from Kayla. So I, I become the owner of the bowl that I made and I'm only obligated to give her back the money. So that's one possibility of why you don't have to give back the skach. Maybe you have, you stole some tree branches but you are the one who made it into skach and now it's a new thing. The other possibility is that this is part of Takanat Marish, which is also called Takanat Hashavim. So the rule of the beam or the rule of the penitence. And this is a rule that states, if I stole a beam and I built it into a house, I stole a giant beam and I built it into a house. So technically this beam does not belong to me and I should have to give it back to the person I stole it from. But the halacha is that I don't have to that beam becomes mine and I only pay back the money because we don't want this is why it's called we don't want to make such a strong um, impediment to my repentance like if I have to undo my entire house I'm not going to want to do that that's going to be a huge barrier to me doing teshuvah. so we say okay fine you can leave your house up and you'll just pay back the money of the beam that's marish. and um, so that's also could be what's happening here in the story or in this halacha that we don't want to say you have to, you have, yes, you, you should be, you should have to return it. You would have had to return it, except that we don't want to have to say that we don't want to create this barrier to your doing tshuva. You, you built this into your sukkah. It's your skachna. We're just going to let you have it and you'll pay back the money. So, um, I, I think that the story is, can be read, I don't know if this is exactly what you're asking, but I think the story is is the way that it is, it is it sort of can be read as subverting or sort of against the grain of the halachic portions of this Gemara. I think you can read it also as doing the same thing to Takanat Mirush because it's saying, it's showing us the other side of here's this woman who, like really that is her trees. Um, so is it fair? Who is it? It's it's a rule that's trying to um, it's it's trying to help the person who stole achieve chuva and to not make too harsh a punishment, which is obviously very valuable. But the story I do think challenges that a little bit, or, or at least challenges us and makes us want to see the other side of that, like situations are complicated and that. That's taking something away from the woman because here's this woman who, like, those were her trees that she really wants. Um, and just to just to go back to the way to restate the way that um, this, I think, sort of is in tension with the halachic portions in a way. Um, I I like the way Faust said it, which is that there is a. Halakha. And this is like the Halakha, but there's also an Agadah, right? A story, agadah is a word for a story in the Gemara. And the Halakha is that you don't have to pay her. You don't have to return the gach and you just give her the money. But the Halakha is, sorry, but the Agadah is,
2: you know, this extra halachic. The situation is more complicated and maybe that's actually not so nice. I don't know if that answered your question, uh,
1: Phil, but if, you, if not, um, you know let us know. And if there's any other questions, it's been so lovely to learn with you all. Uh,
0: it's been lovely to hear you teach as well. Um, I don't see any other, um, a nice comment on the uh, use of, uh, what was it? His, yeah, uh, nice come on the use of his spleen, but i believe that wraps up there's no other lingering questions on facebook live He peep. but it's been a joy to hear you teach and thank you to mary welcome for a great class and to everyone who is joining us today on zoom on Rachel live on facebook thank you for coming to learn we are going to continue our sukkot programming today very soon at 12 p.m with the Shilmechitsa, a Sukkot invention, a alumni Beit Midrash of the Dr. Beth Samuels High School Summer Program with Leah Sarna. Um, please note, this will not be, this class will not be live streamed, this will only be on Zoom, so you have to register. And also exciting, we will resume our Falzman starting next Sunday, October 3rd with Rabbi, with Rabbi Silber and The Struggles of Jacob, a continuation of his Sunday morning Tanakh classes. Thank and you all, thanks for joining. And, you, and as always, you can find more information about this class and all of our fall pro, upcoming fall programming on our website at risha.org/classes. And thank you to Mira for this opportunity to learn with you and for everyone who attended. We hope to see you again soon.